Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Sean Clifford. He is the CEO of a company called Canopy. Uh, he, before, served as vice president of Barron Public Affairs, uh, advising uh, tech companies, nonprofits on issues of culture and policy. He has a master's degree from St. John's College, the Great Books program, and also an MBA from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. Sean Clifford, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, just just tell us right off the bat, what, what is Canopy? What does it do? Canopy is a digital parenting software company that effectively tries to equip parents to deliver their children a safer and healthier internet experience, and specifically one free from pornography, which very regrettably is much more of an issue today for reasons that we can explore. The protection of, of young people uh, is it, you know, there were talks about video games, you know, 12, 15 years ago. Uh, do you include the video game, you know, the, just the overstimulation or the, and the violence in that focus? You know, so at the very outset, our principal goal is to provide an internet experience free from pornography. That said, we also do equip parents with the opportunity to set limits on what apps and websites their children are able to visit, thereby delivering them a tool to put some uh, boundaries in place. So whether it's your child may be addicted to Fortnite, which uh, many are, or other, other things that could be just time wasters, we do want to give that tool. And this is part of a broader attempt in order to return the locus of control back to the family. We think that parents very much need to parent in the digital world, just like they do in the offline world. Part of that is setting boundaries. Part of it's helping our children understand the impact of, of what they're doing. And the goal is ultimately to have them grow up and make responsible, independent decisions. But while they're young, we still think there's a very important role for parents to play uh, to set some limits and provide that kind of education uh, you founded it in 2019. Was there some particular event that sparked your your urge to, to create something? You know, there were kind of three. There, the first is I started having kids. So back in 2019, I had three children at that point. I now have four. And so the urgency of finding some way to try to live well with technology just was uh, became a little bit more at the front of my mind. The second was that the nature of the problem, I think, has changed. So smartphone effectively was introduced, let's you know, say, a little over 10 years ago. And we went from 
brand new to 95% penetration among American teenagers in a blink of the eye. And so we're engaged in this massive social experiment where we've given devices to our kids, most of the time unfettered with very little limits on place. And the early results of this experiment are somewhat disconcerting. So understanding that so much of the issues that we've seen around uh, anxiety and depression, which is really growing among uh, American teenagers, can be traced back to the smartphone. And then the third is um, I, in 2010, had met a fascinating uh, individual by the name of Rabbi Moshe Weiss in Israel who had been working on technology to try and address this. And it was in 2018, I received a phone call from him saying that the tech that actually could make a difference uh, had come a long way and was close to being ready. So those three things came together and I jumped in feet first. You know, what you mentioned a moment ago, I think you said the word experiment, and it happens so fast. Uh, where, where, Sean, were the voices saying, wait a minute, the, the digital people themselves talk about this as a revolutionary breakthrough, you know, comparable to Gutenberg or comparable to the invention of writing. That means a drastic change in, in everything, everything, social life, personal life, privacy, youth. Uh, why, why, why did everyone jump in so, so fast? Why was it so headlong? Was it just there was so much money to be made? It's a great question. There's probably a lot of answers to it. I think the first thing that I would note is that most people, even today, I think are surprised by how quickly this has come about. And so I'm not sure that looking back, there was an intentionality and a enthusiasm and eagerness. It just kind of happened on one level, which, which yeah. may sound like an excuse, but I, I do believe that people yeah. were legitimately surprised by it. I think the second thing, and you allude to this in the dumbest generation, we've reached a point where the pace of change is so fast that etiquette around new technology is being developed oftentimes by the younger generation. So the great example uh, that you had referenced was, you know, when I was growing up, I learned how to use the telephone from my parents. You don't call during dinner time. When someone calls you, you say, hello, this is the Clifford household. Don't call after 9 p.m. No one, my parents were not there to teach me how to use Facebook. Hmm. In fact, I was on it for uh, many years before probably they were even aware of it as a social phenomenon. So we now have younger generations that are developing the etiquette and the use of technology, how it's uh, shaping them in ways that we used to have time to figure it out. I think the third item is very few parents, even tech experts, could have predicted exactly how uh, some of these trends would manifest themselves. So the emergence of social media was something that uh, the Internet obviously rapidly accelerated and I think has taken us by surprise by how exactly it has impacted the health uh, and the life of the average American teenager. So even acknowledging, even those that understood that these devices were coming and that everyone would be plugged in didn't always see what direction it would go in. So for a few of those reasons, I, I think that there's, <clears throat> there's been a lot of, uh, it's tough to look back and uh, I think be critical. I actually have a lot of empathy for uh, the parents that are dealing with this right now, in part because they're all developing a playbook from scratch. Hmm. And that's difficult 
in a period of rapid acceleration. Um, and even when they feel like they get a handle on it, you know, I had a conversation with a, a parent earlier this year who said, you know what, finally figured out Facebook. And it's like, I'm sorry to say that Facebook was about six years ago. And so we need to get to TikTok. But even then, we're, you know, we're already off onto Discord. And so just the pace of change has made it very, very challenging. Uh, are, are people aware that Silicon Valley em employed uh, scientists, including psychologists, to design a lot of these tools to get young kids hooked? Do they know this? Is this widely realized? I think for a long time, the answer is no. I do think that you've started to see more about this. The first book that I think reached the national consciousness was iGen, written by Dr. Jean Twenge, uh, which she kind of explores that much of the anxiety that American teenagers feel is, again, tied directly to their smartphone. The Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, obviously... Yeah had a big role in popularizing this idea. And so I think more Americans are, are now aware of it. I also think the third factor is a lot of American teenagers are unhappy and they recognize at some level that it's tied to their devices. And so just from the organic bottom up as well, uh, parents are starting to question, why is this device that promised us so much actually not delivering on some of these things, but instead, uh, producing outcomes that actually run very counter to what we would hope for our kids, which is that they would be fulfilled, that they would be happy, that they would be healthy. So I think the more that the problem is acutely felt, the more that you have some of these uh, popularizing vehicles, people are starting to appreciate that this is, this is not purely accidental. No. How widespread is, is the penetration, the usage uh, the viewing of pornography by by kids, maybe, maybe by under 15-year-olds. Do you know? I would say that the majority of American children will enter middle school having already been exposed to hardcore pornography. And for over 60% of them, their first exposure has been accidental. So hmm. the numbers around this, right, is you're, you're polling children, which oftentimes presents some difficulties. But... The data suggests that it is incredibly prevalent and that it's the average age of exposure is dropping year over year. So that talks about exposure. Then let's what, what, talk about the actual use. Well, well, quick, quick. What is the average age of exposure? Do we know? The right best now? estimates are somewhere between 8 to 11 years old. <laughs> oh, brother. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. And as the devices become more prevalent, so, you know, something like 50 to 60% of 11-year-olds have their own smartphone or tablet, right? These are the primary vectors of transmission. So it's not surprising that the age is dropping year over year. With respect to the prevalence, again, it's harder to pin down exactly or the how many actively seek this out. Pornography remains a taboo topic. Obtaining accurate results about it are difficult, to say the least. But um, all indications suggest that it's it's massive. A huge percentage of men, on uh, I should note the percentage for women as well, um, are actively seeking out pornography on a regular basis. Now, you said uh, the first exposures are often accidental. How does that happen? You are doing a project 
or school and you type in beach and uh, one or two clicks away, you're on a site. So that's one. The second, so it's kind of the accidental stumbling upon it while innocently searching for something else. The second is you have a older sibling or a peer at school who's got older siblings uh, and they introduce it that way. Hmm. Uh, the third is, you know, we used to talk about how it once was difficult to find pornography. Now it's difficult to avoid it. So we hear more and more often from parents who say, my son was in a Roblox chat group and someone posted a link there and he thought it was about Roblox, clicks it, and then he's off uh, into a dark corner of the internet. And so increasingly it's popping up everywhere. It's no longer isolated to the dark corners of the internet. It, it's finding your children. So I don't mean to be a fear monger, but the reality is that uh, it now appears in sites that you would never imagine actually have that kind of content. Yeah. I mean, you know, Sean, I'm, I'm 62 years old. And, and so, you know, in 1975, you know, if, if, if some of us somehow got a hold of a Playboy magazine, you know, we're 14 or 15 years old, we, we would, of course, we all want to look at it, of course. And we were kind of, oh, my, oh, my goodness. You know, we we're a little bit overwhelmed by that. So 14-year-old boys, they've seen everything by now. Yeah, I mean, the sad reality is that the average 18-year-old boy that has been exposed to pornography and actively searching it, you know, by the time they're 18, they will have seen more images of naked women than their average ancestor would in an entire lifetime, perhaps many ancestors put together. So it's changed, and I think that's such an important point, which is the nature of pornography has changed, both in terms of the content itself but then also the delivery mechanism. And these two changes make a world of difference. So just to unpack that a little bit, yeah. um, the advent of the internet, for, and, so, and let me step back for one second. You are exactly right. This is an age old thing. This is the desire to seek this content out. It's one of the most hardwired elements of our brain uh, that we are, uh, you know, the re reproductive drive is strong. So I, I should note that at the outset. In fact, Plato kind of talked about this issue uh, back when the challenge was little drawings on clay shards. So um, it's an age-old question, but what has changed is, we'll go through it. The internet, and specifically the adoption of the high-speed internet, uh, we've had the basic, uh, we, we've gone, and you alluded to this in your book, Digital Divide, of digital immigrants, digital natives, and now I think we have a new one, which is device natives, right, where it's that instantaneous access at any moment, and that makes a big difference. Um, and we also now have unending novelty. So high-speed internet makes it such that you can not only see one image, but you can watch multiple HD videos, one after the other, and we are hardwired for that novelty. And when you can have that, you binge on it. And there's a very strong process in the brain that drives you to keep consuming. And we can get into the science of it if it's interest, but uh, it's there. So the net result is you have pornography today that is more addictive, it's more formative, and it's very difficult to avoid. Those three things together have transformed us from the world of Playboy or Penthouse to the world of Pornhub. And regrettably, it has a much more lasting impact. Uh, okay, impact. Uh, well, no, no. First, first, but well, no, actually, let's go ahead and go talk about impact. 
What do we know? Is there social science uh, research coming forward about the, the longer term impact on, let's say, a kid who started looking at porn at age 12? He's now 23, 24 years old. What would you say is the, is the effect? We can hypothesize about it. Yeah. And the reason I say that is Gary Wilson, who wrote a book called Your Brain on Porn, noted that as researchers have tried to understand the longitudinal impact, one of the challenges in the last five to 10 years is that they have not been able to find control groups of uh, primarily men that have not been exposed to pornography. <laughs> and so... Uh, given that, right, we're, we're like the, the typical scientific approach of having a control group um, doesn't work quite as well. But, um, yeah, we, we can unpack it. Number one, when you watch pornography on a regular basis, uh, it shapes your taste. It shapes your understanding of sex and it shapes your understanding of relationships. And so when we try to understand the, the broader impact from an individual's perspective, they have different expectations about what intimacy uh, is. They have different expectations about how that factors into a healthy relationship. Um, and they also have, uh, they've been impacted by it at a physiological, physical level. And kind of the two primary things there are, number one, it's actually shaping the brain. So the brain is wiring in certain ways. Um, and over time, that can, that can have an impact. The, you know, the more that you are exposed to something, any kind of, uh, stimulant, the more that it actually will result in your brain cells firing together in a particular pattern or wiring together, excuse me. And uh, once that happens, that can be reversed, but it takes time. Uh, and so it does have an actual impact in the very nature of the brain. It's also resulting in physical impacts. And so again, it, it's a somewhat dark topic. Uh, so pardon jumping into this, but if you go back to 2010, the percentage of men who were seeking medical care for erectile dysfunction who were under the age of 30 was uh, effectively zero, maybe 1%. If you look today, the percentage of men who are seeking medical care for erectile dysfunction who are under the age of 30 is 25%. You're kidding. And so something has changed, right? We're still trying to unpack exactly what it is, but most of the best guess is uh, pinpoint pornography is a leading driver of that. So it is impacting us uh, in ways. And then it kind of, if you take a step back from the individual, it is impeding new relationships from starting. It's hurting relationships that already exist. It's resulting in divorces. Pornography is increasingly cited. It's one of the top causes behind divorce. And so the things we care about, the formation of the family, you know, healthy families, are all being corroded by this force that we're uh, regrettably marinating in. And so it has a big impact. And that's not even to explore some of the downstream, right? The, the sex trafficking, what actually happens to the folks that oftentimes participate in these videos. Much of it is not consensual, right? There's, there's a lot of problematic things in there as well. So, and, <laughs> not, and, uh, and it's inviting young people to do their own uh, you know, their, their, their own sex stuff and post it, right? Yes. And so, you know, this has led to the rise of sexting, where right. one out of 
four American teenagers has received a sext, one out of seven has sent one. That data is actually uh, a study that found those numbers was done before COVID. Uh, we think it's gone up fairly significantly since then. And it's being spurred on uh, by not only the sexting, but you have the emergence of websites like OnlyFans, which, again, call people to kind of set up their own, you know, it's the gigification of the pornography industry. Uh, and so it is instructing uh, our youth about this. And the one anecdote I'll show here is that we were meeting with a individual who mentors um, youth groups, and they used to talk about pornography with the middle school group. And one year, last year, he shifted it to the elementary school, and parents were outraged, and they couldn't understand why he had made that decision. And he told them that by the time they get to middle school, it's already too late. Hmm. They've already been exposed to it. And the question then the parents need to confront is, where do you want your children to turn when they have these questions? Do they want to learn about this from you or do they from Google or from some of the sites that are out there? And so, uh, look, it's a very tough challenge for parents because I mean, we prefer to push that off as long as possible, needless to say. What does Canopy offer to parents? Canopy is software that you can download to your child's device. And at the highest level, we hope to offer you peace of mind. So how do we actually do that? We've leveraged some really impressive advances in technology developed in Israel that enable us to block pornography that other filters miss. So the two really exciting advances, we've trained artificial intelligence to identify nudity and pornography with 99.7% accuracy. Mm-hmm. Number two, we've figured out how to scan internet traffic as you browse in real time, in milliseconds. So as you go to a browser and type in a website, the page will populate and we will have scanned all the text, all the images, and all the videos on that page to make sure that it's appropriate before we load it. And, and this is done in milliseconds, right? There's not a detectable latency impact. So the combination of those two things mean that we can catch pornography websites that are brand new. They've never been scanned before, never been tagged. We can filter within websites. So much of the internet today, regrettably, is good mixed with bad. And so we can pull out the bad and still give you the good. And we also have the capability, if parents uh, opt into it, to scan photos taken by the device itself and flag if they're problematic when they hit the memory of the device. And so this is kind of intended as an anti-sexting capability. So those are the things that we do. When we don't filter within uh, apps, we give you the option also to uh, block them outright. So we we try to make this as tamper-proof and simple to use as possible so that, again, your child can explore freely and you can have the confidence that they're having and encountering uh, a better internet experience. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Do, do you uh, 
as, as, as parents adopt your products, do you have some, some consulting guidance for them? Yes. The first thing that we always try to communicate is that Canopy is a tool. We think it's a fantastic tool, but it is not a replacement to parenting. It is a tool that will help you parent in the digital space just like you would in the offline world. And we think that's important, but it is not the silver bullet that ends the, res the responsibility. And so that's, that's the first thing that uh, we always feel is incredibly important to convey to parents. The second is we think that parents need to be engaged and need to have not one conversation, multiple conversations with their children, not just about some of the content they might encounter online, but how technology is playing a role in their lives. And it is. And we at Canopy think technology can be a good thing. We're pro-technology. We just think that it needs to be bound and harnessed in a way that serves our intentions and doesn't just harvest our uh, attention. And that figuring out how to do that well is something that families need to engage with. And it'll look differently in different families. I can tell you a little bit about what we do in the Clifford household. Uh, when we walk into our home, we have a basket. Right as you enter, you put your device there. And that's where it lives, right? So if I need to go come home after work, if I need to go check a work email, I'll walk over to the basket. Uh, we don't allow devices in the bedroom, right? And there's a great book out there called The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch. And he's put together what I consider to be some of the best recommendations for how to live well with technology. Hmm. Um, and we've drawn upon a number of them. But each family needs to figure it out. And it's, it's hard and it's complicated and it will shift as the nature of our devices shift and as your children age. But uh, it's really important. And so part of what we want to do, we're, Canopy is primarily a tool, but we also hope to emerge as a resource to help families as they navigate this because it's dynamic, it's tricky, but uh, it's really important that parents play an active and engaged role in ensuring that their children are using technology well. Uh, again, the hope is that when your child turns 18 and they venture off into the world, that we will have equipped them to make smart decisions about uh, this life. I don't yeah. think technology is going away. The cat's out of the bag. So much of our task is not simply to uh, kind of adopt an Amish lifestyle, as uh, appealing as that may be, but to figure out how to live yeah. well. Is there something of an arms race going on between you and the the websites i mean as, as you figure out technology to block things do they have people trying to figure out ways of getting around things uh to the extent that there's an arms race it's probably between us and uh the enterprising 16 year old <laughs> wants to <laughs> evade our filter um no within websites themselves we don't uh we, we think we've got a fairly robust tool the bigger challenge is posed by apps themselves a number of apps have adopted peer-to-peer -peer encryption which broadly speaking we support privacy and security and so that's uh but it does impede our ability to filter within some of the apps and so that has been one of the areas where we're constantly figuring out how we can adopt uh new ways to ensure that we're delivering security to to families um, how that currently works now is, for instance, we don't filter within uh, the Reddit app. And so some parents will block the Reddit app and direct their children to Reddit on a browser, in which case we can fully filter the content. So 
it is uh, it is an arms race in that it, it's very dynamic. You know, we're on multiple operating systems, lots of different hardware platforms, lots of different versions, different apps, different websites. It's an incredibly complex uh, system out there. And so to stay on top of it and ensure that we're providing robust protection is a challenge, but uh, a worthwhile one. And, and we think that if, you know, the impact of getting it right goes a long way. Uh, last question, Sean. What do you say to parents who respond, you know, I, I trust my child. I, I don't want to come off as being suspicious or doing surveillance on my own child. I, I, that's not a good relationship for me to have. What's your response? First, that we applaud that instinct, that we want parents and children to have good relationships. And that's incredibly important. And that they should be asking those questions about how this is going to impact the nature of the relationship and take the steps to make sure it's done the right way. That said, the analogy that we often use is akin to driving. You can have a child who's a fantastic driver, and that's important, but it also uh, matters who else is on the road. And hmm. right now, unless you take proactive steps to ensure that there is some filter or protection on your devices, the data suggests your child will be exposed to pornography before you'd like it to happen. And it's, so it's not a matter of your child. Again, the 60% figure of children that are accidentally exposed, right? Those, they're not out there seeking it in the majority of, of instances. So I would say to them that it's not, you know, you, you should try and raise your children to have their own internal filter. That's so critical. Um, you should make sure that you have good relationships and you're able to communicate with them openly, but you also need to understand that it now finds your children. And again, do not mean to be fear monger, but that's the sad state of the digital world that we live in now. And to recognize that and not take action, um, I, I think is, uh, you know, something that we, we hope to avoid. Well, I, I, you know, when I gave a lot of lectures after doing that Dumbest Generation book, I always got the question, well, look, it's just a tool, you know, the, that, that iPhone, smartphone. It's just a tool. It depends on how people use it. And I, I responded by saying, how naive must you be to think that this device, which is claimed to have revolutionary potential, is so benign, that it's so neutral, that it's, that it's not going to have an effect on the user you know, citing Thoreau's line, we become the tools of our tools. And, and to think that Silicon Valley is just sort of a, a neutral content provider and that people have choice, I can do this or I can do that, is, again, to be remarkably callow about the intentions of this world uh, of, of the screen. So how do, how do people find out about Canopy? Well, so grateful for the conversation today. They can find out about Canopy by going to our website, canopy.us, that's C-A-N-O-P-Y dot U-S. And we've got some incredible technology that is, you know, our product launched uh, earlier this year. It's been tried and tested in Israel, now protects more than 2 million devices there, and very excited to be in the United States protecting American families. Sean Clifford, thank you for joining us. Mark, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education.
Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.